0: It's good to be back with you in the pulpit, resuming our series here on the Psalms. Chris Breton obviously preached last week, gave you guys a little taste of soul in the city, which was great. The week before that, I was actually at a family camp in New Hampshire. My whole family, we all went to this camp in New Hampshire, and I was the camp speaker. And I got to speak uh, on the Lord's Day, and then some chapel messages, and some workshop time, and a little bit of pastoral care stuff. And it was a great time away. But we did have kind of crazy moment there. I think it was on Tuesday. It was like camp ran from Saturday to Thursday. And so it was like dead center in the middle. It it had been a little bit kind of uh, misty, you know, overcast, kind of a little drizzly. And then this one afternoon, we had this storm that just came out of nowhere. It was like one of those microbursts that that they talk about. Like suddenly there was very high wind, all the power in the whole camp went out. Trees were getting knocked over. It was, it was crazy. We, we, there was a tree that fell and had hit one of the buildings on the, one of the corners and had actually made a huge hole in the wall. And during all this, we were on, on the other side of the campus from where that happened, and we were dealing with our um, son, Gabriel, who has type 1 diabetes, and his blood sugar was, like, plummeting. And we were giving him juice and juice and fruit snacks, and, like, it wasn't, it wasn't coming back. And then this storm came out of nowhere, and our kids were just kind of, dispersed throughout the camp, and then it, can, you know how it is, when, when you're not actually on ground zero, the rumors start to come out, right? And it's like, oh, there was a tree, and it fell, and it hit the gymnasium, and there's a bunch of kids who are, you know, have cuts and lacerations and stuff, and their ambulances are coming, and one of our kids we knew was in the gym, and so Kelly was like, all right, you're in charge of Gabriel, and she sprinted across the other, you know, across the camp to the other side of the campus to find out what was really going on and all of a sudden we were just like we were just having a normal exciting fun week at camp and then suddenly on two different fronts we were seized with like deep fear and anxiety and one of the weird things about those sorts of situations is that even after the crisis has passed sometimes it lingers with you for a little while right you can just kind of feel it under the surface that 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 shakiness after the adrenaline rush comes and you have that that trembling you can kind of feel that under the surface for a while. And so, to me, that, that's like a, a perfect illustration of so often in life, things like that just come out of the blue. And they cause these deep fears and anxieties in us. And so what, how does Scripture, how does God want us to deal with those things? What do we do in those sorts of situations? And Psalm 55, I think, is a great help to us, a great encouragement uh, as we face this problem of anxiety and fear. And I think basically what it teaches us is, this is the big idea. When fear makes you want to flee, flee to God. When fear makes you want to flee, flee to God. You can see the, the various situations of anxiety and fear in the psalmist's life, David's life. He says in the, the superscription, a maskil of David, a psalm of David. He has the fear... Um, from various different perspectives and various different situations that are all sort of combining together and piling on him, and he's, he's crying out out of this deep fear and anxiety. Just look at verses 4 through 8. He says his heart is in anguish, he's experiencing fear and trembling, and then if he could just run away, he would. I don't know if you've ever had an anxiety attack or a panic attack, but that's basically what it feels like. Like everything is coming down on you and you just want to run away. You just got to get out of here, wherever here is. And, and so he's deeply troubled by all the things that are going on around him. And my proposal for us this, mor- this morning is that the Bible is not esoteric or irrelevant. And even though we're not a 1000 BC king of Israel, that the scriptures actually have a lot to teach us about how we manage and push into our anxiety to move into deeper fellowship with God, that whatever helped David might actually help us too. And so if you've ever felt like verses four through eight, if you you read that and you say, man, I I remember on this time when I felt like that, or whenever I go into this situation, I feel like that, then Psalm 55 has some encouraging words for you. David is facing uh, danger from outside. He says in verse three, he can hear the noise of the enemy. Outside the camp that the wicked bear a grudge against him In other words that people are out to get him that he's in danger his life or his livelihood is threatened He even though my my situation that I just told you about at camp was natural evil. Nobody was out to get us um, Nevertheless, it felt like something deeply important to me was in danger And a couple of different people that were deeply important to me were in danger in that moment And so it stokes fear then he talks about the wickedness, a little bit closer to home. It's not just the people outside the gates, David says, that are out to get me, but that there's wickedness all throughout the city. He says that there's violence, strife, iniquity, trouble, ruin, oppression, and fraud everywhere he looks. In other words, it, it seems like everybody's just out for themselves. Everybody is constantly looking to one-up another person. It's not about seeking the common good or doing justice or doing what's right. But everybody's out to get everybody else. Everybody's out to get a leg up on everybody else. And that leaves you not knowing who you can trust. My wife, Kelly, she went to fashion school uh, for her college. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's so interesting. That's so cool. How Did, did you like it? Was it encouraging? And she's just like, it was. She's like, I hated it. It was cutthroat. Everybody was competition with everybody else, and it even felt like your professors were in competition with you. If you had a good idea, they were probably gonna steal it. It, did not, it was not encouraging or enjoyable. It didn't, it didn't make me press into my creativity and my art- artistic gifts. It just left me kind of looking over my shoulder constantly, feeling like somebody was out to get me. That's kind of what David is, ex- is expressing here. I don't know if you've ever felt that way in your workplace or in your family, Your larger family network that that it feels like someone's always trying to get one over on you, or put you at advantage themselves at your disadvantage. That's what David's talking about, and then he talks about betrayal, brings it even closer to home, right? That this is it's not just that my enemies are treating me this way. I can handle it. We've all said stuff like that. I could handle it if it was so and so doing this to me, but I can't believe that it's this person. Who's doing this to me? He's feeling that sting of betrayal. He actually says in verse 12, I could bear an enemy doing this, but it is my companion, my my close friend. Verse 14, it's somebody that I worship the Lord with. We walked in the in the temple of the Lord together, the house of God together. I mean, how many of us have experienced church hurt? Right? Where the very people that we thought were going to be. The protectors and the encouragers and the safe people turned out to be just like the pagan, selfish world. And then not only are these not only has this friend betrayed him, but actually it's been a situation of what I would call manipulation in verse 20 and 21. This person actually violated the covenant. They had entered a sacred agreement with David, and it appears that they actually entered that agreement so that they could disadvantaged David and advantaged themselves that they they spoke with words like butter and soft as oil but really those words were war and swords drawn against him i mean no nowhere more can we see an example of this more clearly than in judas's betrayal of our lord jesus what's the sign that judas gives to the soldiers as to which one they should arrest a kiss that's the type of betrayal that David is talking about. I don't know if you've ever that that manipulation. And it leaves you feeling like I don't know if I can trust anyone. This thinking about Judas as the fulfillment of that the greatest fulfillment of that betrayer makes us realize that actually this whole psalm is a psalm that foreshadows and foretells the gospel. It's Jesus who had this deep anguish in his heart. You remember he prayed in the garden. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. He, was, he had sweat like drops of blood coming from him at, the prospect, at the, uh, the prospect of the wickedness of the world and the sin of the world being laid on him. And yet he didn't flee from it, but that he followed the will of his heavenly Father for our sake. He had all of the betrayal, all of the manipulation, all of the wickedness, all of the darkness of the world laid on him that we might be restored for we are all part and parcel we have been the betrayers we have been the manipulators we have been the wicked and only for christ's sake can we be redeemed so david tells us about all of these life situations that at first glance maybe don't apply to us but in a lot of ways they parallel the things that we face in our time so what does this anxiety or fear teach us about ourselves because remember, my goal through this sermon series has not been to just, you know, you're feeling X, here's a Bible verse, knock out how you're feeling, and now you feel better. No, I want to say, what's what's really going on when we feel that way? And how do we dig deeper into what we're feeling and discover what, the, what our heart is really looking for? And then we can f- discover that Jesus is the only answer that will fulfill those deep longings that we have. So what does fear, anxiety What does it teach us about what's really going on in us? The first thing is that um, fear and anxiety are ultimately, oftentimes at least, ultimately about control. So I have an acquaintance who was a professor at RTS in the counseling department, PhD in psychology, and this is basically what he told me. He said, anxiety is usually about control. It's about when something that you really, really need, that you really, really value, something very important is out of your control. It makes you feel fearful. It makes you feel anxious. Or when, when you had control or you had the opportunity to, to influence or to do the thing that needed to be done and you didn't, and now you are bearing the weight of that, you're feeling that anxiety, you're feeling that fear, you're, you're afraid of being out of control. You're afraid that you aren't able to control the things that are most important to you. And that's, I mean, that's the reality of life, right? We, we go around basically thinking we're in control of our lives, but so much of our world does not depend on us. And so it, it makes us face this issue of control. The analogy that my friend uh, Jim used is it, imagine someone who's wearing a heavy uh, hiking pack. They're hiking, you know, and, and they're wearing this really heavy pack, and eventually their body starts to get sore and achy and even might even spasm, and it's saying, like, get this pack off of me, Right? And that's sort of what anxiety does in our hearts. It's like you're carrying all of this burden and, and an anxiety, an episode of anxiety is actually your, your spirit and your, your body saying, get this anxiety out. Get this, get this out. We are not in control of all of this stuff. Get it out. So it makes us face this issue of control. Am I in control? Who's really in control? It also, anxiety and fear will make us face questions of our own ability or our capability. We come into a situation, and if we think we can tackle the situation, then we might be courageous and brave and a risk-taker and go for it and grab the bull by the horns and that sort of stuff. But when we start to feel as if we don't have the ability, we start to feel as if we don't have the capability to face what's coming at us, then we begin to fall deeper and deeper into anxiety. I mean, have you ever said something like, I just don't know if I can do this anymore, right? That's you facing your limits as a human being, that you don't have the ability. Sometimes there's things that happen in your life and and you literally cannot do anything about them. I was talking with the family uh, after the first service this morning, talking about their their child was in a car accident and just the paralyzing sense of like, there's nothing I can do. I just have to wait. I have to wait for the people to tell me what's going on. I have to wait for them to tell me where my child is. Is what hospital they've been taken to? I have to. I'm I'm completely not in control, and I'm unable. I literally have no ability. I can't heal my child. I can't protect them. So when we face our our finitude, our finitude, when we face our own inabilities, anxiety pushes us into having to face those things, and then finally, it makes us ask the question: Who can I really trust? who can I really trust? Because if you don't have control and you don't have the ability to change the situation, then that means you have to trust somebody else, right? And so anxiety will push you into the place and ask you. Fear will make you ask the question, who can I really trust? And we know, like David, that so often life reveals that the people we think we can trust turn out to not be trustworthy. What's interesting, nothing in the psalm specifically reveals what David is, what situation David is reflecting on as he writes this song. You know, it doesn't say, the superscription doesn't say, when David went to such and such place, or a, it doesn't give us any sense of the events. It's just, to the choir master, a maskal of David. But if you look at the story of David's life, it's hard not to hear some echoes from 2 Samuel, the rebellion of Absalom. If you remember, David, who, you know, had been a, a great king for so long, had many, many failures, but but had been, by and large, a righteous king, a man after God's own heart. And then his grown son, Absalom, begins to turn the people of Israel against David. And Absalom actually raises an armed rebellion against David so that David and his, uh, those closest to him have to flee the city of Jerusalem. And to add insult to injury, Ahithophel, who has been David's uh, advisor, someone who David has walked in the house of the Lord with, Someone who, when David had, uh, he needed a word from the Lord, he would go to Ahithophel. Ahithophel is even sided with Absalom. So he's experienced this, there, there was nothing he could do, right? He thought he raised Absalom, right? But Absalom has been the one who's rebelled against him. He thought he could trust Ahithophel, but even Ahithophel, his, his bosom companion, his clo- one of his closest advisors had turned on him. He's not in control. He's not able to change what's going on. And he doesn't know who he can trust. So how does he help us? How does he get through? There's a couple of things. There's answers, each, actually, to each of those problems that we have. First of all, the answer to our lack of control is the good news that God rules. Verse 19, David calls God the one who is enthroned from of old. He's the creator. He made everything. made the heavens and the earth. And he has a mysterious way of, even even in the darkest of moments, it turns out that God is still at work. That's what David is encouraging us with this morning. Even when you feel like you aren't in control, remember that God is. And even when it feels like God's not in control, remember that God is. He is. A, A verse that I go back to over and over and over again. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that the crucifixion of Jesus happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that he was crucified at the hands of lawless men. It's sin. It was heinous. It was awful what human beings did to the Son of God. And nevertheless, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is the one who rules. He is working all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So yeah, we're not in control. But God is. Secondly, we had to face our capabilities or our lack thereof. But David says, don't worry, because God sustains his people, verse 22. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will sustain you. Whatever you're going through, through his Holy Spirit, through his means of grace, the people of God, uh, the word of God, prayer, the Lord's Supper, he will sustain you. Yeah, he won't always give you what you think you need to overcome the situation or resolve it in the way you want to, but he will always give you the strength that you need, the ability that you need, the words that you need to do his will in a given situation. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 and 21 says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God doesn't always give you what you wish he would give you, but he always gives you what you need to do his will, even in, even in the midst of something that makes you feel deeply anxious, deeply fearful. God equips and sustains, verse 22 says, his people. And, and that's really I mean, if you think about that, that's really very encouraging. God rules and God sustains, which means whatever thing you're facing right now, God thought, this is the thing I want that person to face, right? Sometimes we look back on the history of the church and we think, oh, you know, if we were brave like the apostles, look what the apostles did. Oh, if we were like the the early church fathers who sorted out these doctrines. And oh, what about the reformers, the great awakening? We look back and think, you know, what amazing people. But another way to look at that is God put the right people in the right place to do the right thing at the right time. And that's true for you, too, and for for me. That whatever we're facing, God thought it was ours, you know? It was our time to rely on his power and do his will in the midst of a broken and sinful world. So God rules, God sustains, and finally, God will judge the earth. David repeatedly cries out to God for justice. In verse 1, he says, God, don't hide yourself from me. My enemies are coming against me. Don't hide yourself from me. In verse 9, he says, destroy, O Lord. uh, Destroy these ones who are coming against me and divide their tongues. Kind of echoing the Tower of Babel. You know, divide their, their language. Let them be dispersed so they can't work together to bring corruption and wickedness. Verse 15, to the one who's betrayed him. Uh, about the one who's betrayed him, let him go down to Sheol alive. God, bring your judgment on that person. I'm not going to take judgment on on Absalom. Actually, David is reluctant. If you remember 2 Samuel 15 and following, David is reluctant to even fight against Absalom, but God's judgment does fall on him. Verse 23, he says, uh, Lord, I know you will cast them down into the pit of destruction. God, I, I believe that no matter what it looks like here now in the midst of what's going on and enemies coming against me and all this stuff that's making me fearful and anxious, God, I believe that you will bring your perfect justice in the end. I believe what the Creed says, that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. There is a day coming where there won't be situations where we feel totally out of control and totally overmatched and like we don't know who we can trust because God will bring his perfect justice in the end so what do we do he ends the very last very last phrase of the whole psalm but i will trust in you and actually in the hebrew the the pronoun i is not necessary in hebrew because the verb implies who the subject is but he actually but he actually says i will trust in you. And usually that's emphatic. It's like he's saying, I, I myself, I will trust in you. Even though it feels like everything's coming down around me, I, I will trust in you. And that's the exhortation for us this morning. God is ruling. God will sustain us. God is the only one we can ultimately trust. And when, fa- when fear makes us want to flee, we can flee to God. So trust him, whatever you're walking through this season. Amen let's pray Lord our Heavenly Father strengthen our hearts fill our hearts and minds with a vision of your good and glorious reign over all things with faith and trust in your faithfulness to sustain and empower us that we might do your will in the midst of whatever we're facing. And Lord, by your word and your sacrament, strengthen and mature and enlarge our trust in you. We pray this not for our sake only, but for the sake of the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, amen.